Thank you, everybody. Uh, let me introduce you, Amy. She will be giving the welcome. Um, I want to welcome you all to the event, and thank you for coming this evening. Um, like Sebastian said, my name is Amy, and I'm a, a master's student in the cities program at LSE. So tonight, you are part of an experiment, as we will explore the formation of the urban through the lens of controversy. What you just experienced, the reorganization of this room, demonstrates this idea. A disarray of chairs and tables becomes a disruption, and it required attention and action before things could carry on as normal. This disruption brought together different actors from dis different disciplines to reorganize the physical environment. This exercise approximates the urban controversy on a micro scale. So an urban controversy begins with a disruption. It can range from a natural disaster to a social movement. And this physical or social disruption increases the pressure on institutional capacities and social agreement, agreements, and thus challenges the urban form to absorb a new complexity. In our exercise, each one of you became an actor. Whether you were an active participant in rearranging the furniture, a bystander observing what was going on, or the person that was telling other people what to do, um, <laughs> uh, you were pulled into the act of reorganizing, or at least thinking about the reorganizing, of the physical world. And that is what makes moments of disruption and the controversies that result so fascinating, some might say addicting, um, because they are moments that highlight the social world and its making. As Tommaso Venturini writes, to understand how social phenomena are built, it is not enough to observe the actors alone, nor is it enough to observe social networks once they are stabilized. So in other words, by observing the controversy, we are also observing the construction of our social world. So this evening, we would like to explore how this controversy framework informs our understanding of cities, <coughs> i.e. the urban world and its making. What can we learn about our current urban systems by observing them in moments of crisis? And how do urban controversies bring new actors into the debate and require multiple disciplines to come together to resolve both technical and political issues? So, Today, we will hear two debates about controversies within the urban context. Um, panel one will be discussing a physical disruption, two physical disruptions, in fact, in the city and how these create urban controversies. And in panel two, oh, yes. <laughs> um, and in panel two, we will discuss a social disruption, the London riots of 2011, um, and how they produce an urban controversy. Uh, each panel will be followed by a time for questions and answers, and we will have a 10-minute break in between them. And we will conclude the evening with an open discussion about controversies as a lens for understanding our cities. Before we begin, I want to remind our presenters to please keep their presentations under 15 minutes, at 15 minutes or under. Um, and we really feel like the discussion time is very valuable, so um, we will ask you to to wrap up at 15 minutes. And as for our audience, <laughs> um, 
please remember to sign with your cell phones. Um, and we're using a hashtag for our event, LSE Controversies. Um, and now I'll ask you to don your critical and controversial hats as Dr. Susie Hall introduces our first speaker. I have told in you because this is the most radical rearrangement of a room I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get the brightest and the best together, you give them a challenge to rearrange them. Amazing, I'm feeling the creativity. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce two of my colleagues. Um, Austin, I work with the LSE Cities, and Sebastian, I work with within the Cities program. Um, I'd like to start by introducing Sebastian. He's an architect um, who also has a master's in sociology, and he's currently um, doing a master's in city design and social science in the cities program. He's the kind of classroom colleague that one really wishes for. He is exceptionally bright, wonderfully energetic, and always questioning. Questioning ideas, questioning the lecturer, questioning the readings, <laughs> questioning the tasks. <laughs> the key area of Sebastian's research is an exploration of how to build after the earthquake in Chile in 2010. I'm then shifting to Austin Zielemann. Um, do you want to find the space? <laughs> so please do. Please do. So Austin's work is very much at the intersection of urban studies and anthropology, and I thought I might start by pulling out a few of Austin's awards off his CV tonight, but after going through, I don't know how many pages, was it 790 pages of awards, Austin? <laughs> I think it's best to say that Austin is a very well-awarded academic. Um, Austin explores the landscapes of risk, particularly in Bogota, and his work engages with the dialogues between risk auditors and risk recipients. Welcome, and I think you're going to be accepted. Who's going to be starting tonight? Austin, thank you. Do you want to I'll do it. Well, thanks, Susie, for, for the introduction, and thanks to Amy and Sebastian and everyone else who's involved in the organizing of the event. Um, I too would like to congratulate you for the, the, the reorganization or the deorganization of the space. Um, interesting what you did with it. Uh, hope there's not a fire or anything like that. So <laughs> uh, some in the back won't be able to get out. Um, <clears throat> but I also wanted to congratulate the organizers just for, for having created and put together what I think is a really innovative and important um, intervention and conversation around urban controversies. So. What I'm going to do today is tell you a story uh, that centers on a specific controversy, or actually a set of controversies, uh, that took place in Colombia in 1985. And some in the audience I know, I've spoken to, are familiar with these. Um, so maybe they can chime in. Feel free to do so at any time. Um, so what I want to do is I want to use this story to reflect on three questions. The first one is, what emerges from controversies? So in that sense, not what do controversies reveal, or what do they show us, but rather what they do. Um, so in that sense, uh, we look at you know, what controversies produce. And they don't just produce things themselves. 
So that brings us to, to the second question that I want to think through today, through this story, which is what kind of event is a controversy? So should we see controversies as a kind of isolated occurrence that happens at a single moment in time? Or rather, uh, or should we focus on the ongoing processes through which anything, any kind of occurrence, ultimately becomes a controversy or not? And then the third question, and this is something that Amy already mentioned, is what does it mean to think about urban controversies? Is there something distinctive about the relationship between controversies and cities? Um, I'm not sure where I'll come down on that or where I'd like to, but I think that's good. That's something to, to discuss. I'm inclined to say that in some ways it might be misleading to think about um, certain controversies as distinctively urban controversies, but perhaps it also pushes us as urbanists or, or students of the urban to expand our, our field of vision um, <clears throat> to take into account some of the things that, I, that I'll be discussing today. So let me start off with, with the story. Um, it's November 6th, 1985 when 35 members of the M-19 or the M-19 guerrilla group attacked the Palace of Justice, the Palacio de Justicia, in central Bogota. They took hundreds of hostages, including 24 Supreme Court judges. The president then rejected demands. The demands were that he come and stand trial for essentially uh, betraying a previously negotiated peace accord. And instead, he ordered the army to storm the building. Now, in the ensuing battle between the Colombian Armed Forces and the rebel group, more than 75 hostages were killed. The Palacio de Justicia went up in flames. 11 of the federal justices were trapped inside and were themsel themselves killed. Now, exactly one week later, a volcano 80 miles west of Bogota, the <coughs> Nevado de Ruiz, erupted suddenly. So warning signs of imminent danger had been ignored, and over 25,000 people died as a massive mudslide buried the town of Armero. And this photo shows where that mudslide covered over um, where the town of approximately 25,000 inhabitants previously lived. Now these coinciding events, as you could, as you could probably imagine, um, happening only one week apart, were immediately conjoined in political discourse. So, for example, um, the president Belisario Betancourt referred to the two difficult tests that Colombia had just faced. He said one emanating from the violent and irrational action of men, the other a terrible blow from nature. So a similar framing appeared in a newspaper editorial entitled Yesterday Men, Today Nature. So the way these, these events are being framed already in political discourse. And you have political cartoons also juxtaposing the two events together. Now, while these are obviously two catastrophes of very different types, they were both seen as requiring a joint and coordinated response. So the media also conjoined the two events, but in a slightly different way. They were assigning blame for the casualties in both cases to governmental negligence and a lack of foresight. So a week after the Admero tragedy, the volcanic eruption, El Tiempo, the main Bogota newspaper, published a cartoon simultaneously asking, when will we learn that it is better to prevent than lament? Two days after that, a very influential uh, newspaper columnist for the same newspaper authored a scathing report under the, the heading Apocalypse Foretold, which is why I titled the, this presentation Apocalypse Foretold. So what he, what he said 
what he was what he was not trying to do was to mourn the the casualties, which of course was an important thing to do at that moment. But what he, what he, really what he was doing is reminding readers of the of the of the mountain of evidence that both of these events were likely to take place. So he cited all kinds of evidence, and I won't go into details now, but that both events could have been predicted, could have been foreseen, and were not. So he ended the, the editorial with a quotation saying, we have become the land of tragedies forewarned, of prophecies that come true, of prognoses that materialize. So again, looking ahead, a failure of foresight. So I want to quickly compare this with government and media response to another large-scale disaster that happened just two years before, in 1983. And this is in the southern city, the southern Colombian city of Popayan, where an earthquake destroyed much of its historic center, causing 250 deaths and over 3,000 injuries. And this is the, the cathedral of the city, uh, which was actually the epicenter of the earthquake. So the comparison here is between the events that I just discussed in 1985 and one that happened three years before. So unlike the kind of outrage that, that transpired in the aftermath of the 1985 events, in this case, there's no blame leveled at the government for having not foreseen the, the catastrophe. Of course, earthquakes, as we all know, are more difficult to predict, um, a very difficult to predict kind of event. But in many cases, in the aftermath of earthquakes, you find controversies around uh, the degree to which risk was either assessed or communicated properly, or uh, the degree to which the, the state or was, was prepared um, for the event. So in the case of Popayan, everything that was discussed in the media and political discourse was all about recovery, reconstruction, looking backwards, how to reconstruct the city, how to put it back together after the earthquake. Whereas in 1985, after the Armero tragedy and the Palace of Justice event, you have everything looking forward. It's about foresight. It's about prognosis. It's about prophecy. Now, my argument is that the, the siege of the Palace of Justice and the Armero tragedy are not just controversies that happened in 1985, but actually continue to inform debates about governmental responsibility, about the loss of life, about what, what the state uh, is, is accountable for and expected to do in relationship to certain kinds of events, whether they're an attack on the Palace of Justice by a political armed political group or an event like a volcanic eruption or an earthquake. So how did this, how did this happen? Um, what, I, what I'm arguing is that the, the significance of these catastrophes was not something inherent to them, that they became controversies, but it's the way that they were made to constitute a certain kind of crisis, a crisis of technical expertise, that is, the expertise to know that something is about to happen or to be able to predict it that it's going to happen, and a crisis of political authority, in that sense that, that it's the state's responsibility to do that. Now. This is interesting to me uh, because of what I went to Colombia to study, which is the way in which ideas of risk, security, become central to the way the city is governed, planned, built, and lived um, in the in contemporary period. So how did I end up getting involved in this? Well, even 30 years after the fact, government officials who I talked to interested in, in issues of risk risk management, disaster risk management, violence and crime prevention, 
always went back to the year 1985 to talk about that moment as the moment where you have a creation of a whole set of laws, institutions, policies, programs, but also kind of wider and less tangible sort of cultural and political sensibilities around the responsibility um, of the state, both in, in the scale of, of the urban um, as well as in the national territory of foresight, of looking ahead, of trying to predict things uh, that are going to happen and then intervening in them. So what I want to do now is talk about how the controversy didn't just end there when those policies, programs, institutions, laws, regulations were put into effect after 1985. So I'm going to do that by returning to the Nevado del Ruiz, the volcano that erupted and set off this landslide that, that buried a town of 25,000 people. Now, 25,000 victims, and yet the life and death of one of them, a 13-year-old girl named Omaira Sanchez, and some of you may, may have heard of her before, she became a symbol of the disaster for both national and international viewers and observers alike. Now, what I'm going to do is just put roll a little bit of a uh, clip from Televisión Española, the, the Spanish television station um, that covered the event to give you a sense. Uh, I'm going to turn down the volume. Um, but basically what happened is when the avalanche hit Armero, Omaira was one of the few who escaped being buried alive. Instead, she was trapped in a pool of water and mud and unable to be rescued without the rescue workers were afraid of rescuing her would actually do serious damage to her. Um, so they tried for 60 hours um, while television cameras rolled, basically, um, televising the story throughout Colombia but around the world. Um, and in many ways her, her death and what she came to represent at that moment uh, was a widely mediated, circulated um, kind of symbol of the, of the disaster. So. It's obvious to, to pretty much everyone in Colombia that the enormous loss, loss of life in Armero uh, was personified by Omaira and the mass-mediated spectacle of her death, which I'm showing you a little bit of, of here. Um, but less obvious is the way that she also came to represent the same kind of political critique. So the, the same the critique that the state was unable to protect the lives of its most vulnerable citizens, Romaira Sanchez, a 13-year-old girl, but also a failure of foresight. Again, she was often discussed as um, a life that should have and could have been saved if the state and its technical um, apparatus would have been able to, to foresee the event. But Omaira was also seen as a kind of beacon of, of sort of moral virtue, of moral fortitude. Now, every representation of her life and death talks about the way in which she was this patient, tranquil, um, <coughs> dignified, strong um, kind of figure. So she, she, in that sense, she came to sort of represent in Colombia, my argument is, a, a form of victimhood that then influences the ways in which issues around victimhood and, and the politics of, of security um, and violence get, come, to be, come to be discussed. So now let me just quickly go on to the next um, example, which is how the Palacio de Justicia also continues um, to be controversial. 
But before I do that, this is Omaira's mother in 2010, um, next to President Juan Manuel Santos, the president of Colombia. At the site of the Armero disaster 25 years later, Santos is in the middle of 2010, which is a huge period of rain um, and flooding, displacement, um, all kinds of problems throughout the country caused by, caused by rain. And where does he do um, his, his declaration of reconstruction and policies? At the site of the Armero tragedy, and next to him is, is Omaira's mother. So, as you see, the way in which the, the event continues to kind of become and, and play an active political role in the present um, is still very much the case. So now to the Palacio de Justicia in the last few minutes that um, I have left. So it also remains controversial. So many of the details of the event still remain a mystery. And what you have is a set of journalists, artists, activists, families of, of some of the, the, the victims actively working to reconstitute the event as a different kind of event. One that's not necessarily about foresight, about the state's inability to look ahead to the future and to prevent something from happening, but actually something much more political in the sense of justice and injustice. So journalists have drawn attention to, to the military's use of excessive force and the disregard for civilian casualties in the, in the army's handling of the event. They've highlighted the torture and forced disappearance um, of people subjected of being complicit in the M-19 or M-19 plot. There are about 10 cafeteria workers from the Palace of Justice who've never, whose whereabouts are still unknown um, to this day. And it's become common to refer to the violence um, of those days more as a massacre, or in the, in the words of one recent journalistic account, a silenced holocaust. So you have the active political work of reconstituting the controversy, of keeping it alive, keeping it open, and continuing to return to it as a site of, of political um, debate and discourse. So my last example, just to keep that going, is, is in, the, in the realm of, of artists and activists who have also made the Palace of Justice the focus of their attention. And probably the, these are families of some of the, the disappeared um, who have ha do demonstrate in central Bogota saying, um, again, reconstituting the event as something that is not, certainly ha is not settled. Um, but I wanted to turn to an artist who I imagine most people living in London um, would know of. And her name is Doris Salcedo. She's an internationally recognized sculptor and for or um, known around these parts as the person who, who cracked the foundation of the Tate Modern. Um, so her work is, is still quite, quite visible there. And all of her art, as she said, has to do with political violence in Colombia and was very much motivated by the Palacio de Justicia, the Palace of Justice event in 1985. However, she returned to the event explicitly in 1982 um, with this public installation in Bogotá. So in 2002, on the 17th anniversary of the siege of the Palace of Justice, what she did, she created a site-specific installation here called Noviembre 6 y 7, November 6th and 7th, which she designed for the facade of the new Palace of Justice in central Bogota, which was built in the same location. She initiated her work at the precise moment at 11.35 when the first person died in the siege, and then she descended uh, wooden chairs over the building's eastern face, 
for the precise uh, temporal duration of, of the battle. So again, what she's doing there, she's actually taking the time of the event, recreating it in 2002 in the contemporary period, again, to, to, to create this sense that this is a controversy that in some ways has been closed and set aside, and in other ways is still very much open um, and, and in, in the visible space of the city. So in doing so, she's attempting to keep the controversy open um, as a matter of political concern whose, whose meaning or um, whose political meaning has not yet been settled. So to, to conclude then on the, the final question, which I really won't say much more about now, but we can talk about it uh, with the other panelists and the, in the various moments for discussion, is what does it mean to think about controversies as urban? So. What does it mean to think about an urban controversy? What is it that distinguishes them from controversies at large? Um, does it make sense to talk about what to think about what I've talked about today as urban controversies necessarily, and how do they inform our thinking about the urban um, more generally? And as I've discussed, my interest in the politics of risk, the politics of catastrophe in Bogota, the way that that shapes um, very much urban concerns and urban dynamics in the city makes me want to say, yes, these are very much all about the urban. But at the same time, I think there's a, there's a question there as to, as to, to what degree um, we would focus on these catastrophes if we simply um, limited ourselves to thinking about urban controversies uh, and, and uh, created too tight a narrow um, sort of border around those. So thanks very much. I'm looking forward to all the other Well, thank you all for being here. Thank you for your great presentation. Um, let me tell you that the, city, the <coughs> urban design looks more or less from here, like a medieval city with entrances. So if you, Michael, if you want, please, yeah, sure. Okay, I'll be talking about experts and citizens, and my, this is a research that I did a couple, uh, one year ago and was financed by the uh, Chilean government, and it's about how public participation was done for the rebuilding plans after the earthquake. So which is the context? We are in Chile on 27 of February in 2010, and when, uh, the fifth biggest earthquake hit uh, our country, uh, the fifth ever registered, and then came a tsunami. A tsunami. So we have 525 casualties, around 500 towns and cities affected, and almost 2 million people with their homes or works uh, seriously affected. So we have a government that just came in and try to address this huge problem while the community NGOs moved really fast all around the country. What happened with the, with the mobilize of the, of, the, of the civil population was that it increases the pressure to the government to solve the problem. These were some of the images that appeared.
So what is the controversy here? The controversy is mainly how to reveal. That was the main discussion, the main uncertainty, and uh, the main disagreement, actually. So to tackle this, the government made a big umbrella, which was called Chile United Reconstruct Better, which was mainly um, very synthetically explained was all the ministries worked out a public private-public public partnership in which corporations finance or in, uh, finance the development of the plans, experts should solve the plan, government bills, and citizens participate. And here's when things become uh, blurry, what is to participate? Uh, the only thing that if this, these plans considered public participation was that instead of a couple of years that the uh, urban plan takes in, uh, in to be approved, it will take only three months. There were 126 of these plans, and mainly uh, six of them, the press, were the most uh, powerful ones in which I'll be concentrating, which press stands for Sustainable Reconstruction Plan. What happens here under this umbrella was mainly that um, appear the figure of the expert and the figure of the citizens. Can you see up back there? Okay. And the controversy was reframed. So instead of saying, what are we going to, how are we going to rebuild, it's, it's one of the controversy was, how are we going to coordinate experts with local knowledge? So we have these two, uh, the expert on the one side, mainly architects, and citizenship yeah. probably are uh, mainly affected people. That, so expert, but it's defined in this is research by the combination of having knowledge and having the responsibility to assume this knowledge to, to, for decision making. But actually the question that arises is, uh, does local people have the knowledge to make city uh, decision? Can they have the responsibility? And there's when the border uh, becomes blurry and this is what I'm, I will be talking about. This idea of boundary work, how expert architects give space for local knowledge to be involved in decision making in the urban. So uh, framing the research question, we have the first thing that I look for is the expert preconception of citizens and how this developed into different public participation methods, which actually framed and shaped, performed different kinds of citizens. I will, focus in a, I will be focusing on three cases which more or less have the same uh, uh, expertise in the architects team. Architects, sociologists were also involved. But interestingly, they make three different kinds of public participation. And of course, different kinds of citizens uh, were taken into account. The first case is Press Constitution, which is uh, done by the famous architect uh, Alejandro Aravene by Elemental, and is um, in the coast of central Chile. I will be trying to explain how this they came out with an image like this into a proposal like this. So I will start by talking about what's, what was their preconception into uh, tackling the, their public. They were using words like opportunity, this was an opportunity, uh, was about combining different knowledges, was to make socially feasible the project that came from an internal office uh, into uh, th these new spaces and 
they, this, this, this last quote is really interesting. If there was no proposal of the table, participation is no. So we were talking about here about they're imagining a beneficiary public, which is mo motivated by their own benefits, but had a valid knowledge, but cannot assume responsibilities. You have to put uh, a proposal into the table. So then I, I um, reconstruct all the participatory process that took, that they, that they made, and the first chart, uh, all the, there's a list of all the public participation methodologies applied in different times of, of, in different weeks, and how uh, each methodology uh, affected different parts of the design process. And what they were speaking, when I was interviewing them, they would say, well, it, we make a pretty fast and risky proposal. So what is all this participation method about in press constitution? Was about forums, about expert making a proposal, putting it to the people, this is one image of a forum, uh, showing it and having feedback, going back to the studio, designing again, going back to the people, having feedback, going back to the studio. So we have an object with this, the result, which is openly to debate, but actually the solution is closed. Architects have the power and they um, have the control of the solution. In Calon's world, it would be a public debate type of methodology. And at the end, what happens is, um, this was the main plan, was an anti-tsunami park. And what was interesting is that they tried to um, push a, a referendum which say, well, would you approve the whole plan? And architects really resisted. And this is the core point, like experts tried very hard to keep their boundaries, to keep their authorities, to keep their power, to uh, the decision making. Finally, how this is solved, uh, this is a quote of a government consultant which was explained well. Finally, what they did is what they did a referendum, park, no park, of course, park, marvelous city, uh, no park, uh, almost hell. So wrapping up the first case, we have experts thinking about a beneficiary, beneficiary public which create a methodology which is a public debate, which were these forums, but created, finally, make appear, perform an active citizen, which had a valid knowledge in decision-making to the urban, but has no responsibilities. The second case is Juan Fernandez, which is an island. And this was really destroyed, and this is what the plan was. But they came out, the experts came out with a fairly different approach. They say, you use wordings like, we were going with nothing. People was available for real reconstruction process. People really can give you the diagnosis. They are the experts. They have obligations too. So what, how these ideas informs a different methodology of participation, a different project. Uh, this kind of approach is, could be synthesized in thinking of a specialized public, which is motivated by their own needs, had a valid knowledge, but also can assume responsibilities. And the, the whole process was really interesting. What they did was a big charrette. They put uh, in, in a big room all the representatives of uh, the fishermen, the taxis, the school community, everyone. And they put it into a, into a whole room for almost three days. And they put a plan in the table, and they just discuss it. In his word, he will say, well, we gather all in the same room, and so for them to choose each other, and we sketch over the plan. And in the, in the chart, we can see that they made one public participation which was informing all the design process, which, of course, had a different, uh, different debates, but the main thing occurs that three 
of four days. So the object is on debate. What is the solution is on debate. What is the problem is on debate. But also the solution is on debate. And this is really interesting. In Cologne's world, this will be a co-production of knowledge methodology. And things become more interesting at the, at the end because um, they have to make a major change, uh, minimum changes. And who make the, this minimal change? What the, the people themselves? They move the, this was a, a, a case that they have to move the football field because it matches with the market. And people moved it. And they have been educated for doing that. They uh, have this intimacy with the project. Another interesting case was at the end they, was, they were going to build one of the models of the house. Um, and when they were building it, the citizens stopped it. And what happens with, with that is because the way in which those houses were designed were not designed with the people, so with the local people. So they stop it and they say, well, we, went, we want this charrette attitude to uh, be incorporated in, in every other urban solution. So wrapping up this case, we have uh, expert thinking of specialist public, which created a co-production of knowledge way of participating, of engaging, and give the people real knowledge and responsibilities. This uh, shapes and brings up uh, an active scientific uh, citizen. And the third case, which is Pretalca, which is a city very, very near Constitution, severely affected also this kind of the images. And they came out with a radical different approach. They say, well, this, the, the, this is the, the main quote. The first quote is uh, the guy, the ex-architect, was uh, uh, in charge of public participation. He was saying, well, I do not know how to make public participation. It's kind of a moral issue. Next to the people, well, I'm super expert. And they have prejudice. And they don't show, they don't participate because they don't want to. Um, and the chief uh, architect of, of the design of the studio was saying, well, isn't many contributions that people can make. So they were thinking of another kind of public, a consumer public, which is motivated by their own interests, which has no knowledge, and was, of course, unable to assume any responsibilities. So what kind of methodology they make? They make a strategic approach, try to sell that, which was, of course, difficult, and based on a top-down analysis. And if we see the methodology uh, in these charts, we see a very fussy, blurry, uh, disorganized uh, methodology. Actually, this picture is one of the public consultancy was made in the week 12, in the last week, was supposed to, supposed to inform the origin of the project. Um, so the object is closed, and the solution is also closed. And this is a methodology which is called uh, a public education. They have to educate the people, which is for, to, for them to know which is the best solution. Okay, uh, and the final part, um, what comes out, they were saying, well, this, I, we know that it's self-referent. We understood what was needed, but uh, the, chief, the, the, the architect and project chief was saying, well, we know that wasn't positively received and digested by the community, and actually the whole project stopped. Um, and the most interesting thing is that they were saying, well, it's a bit of being stubborn and not too smart for the people not to um, really uh, incorporate our, our, our solution. This image is uh, the public showing of, of the final project in the, in the main plaza. So what happened here is we have, they were thinking of a consumer public with, with um, public education model that not only don't have, uh, don't 
incorporate um, the knowledge or the responsibility of the citizens, but also they are guilty, which is very different of the other two cases. So, in conclusions, we have experts and citizens, coming back to our first model, and what happens here is that when cities break out, not only the buildings fall or collapse, but also the social fabric is questioned. One a particular thing that is questioned is who is the expert, who is going to solve these things, but it's uh, interestingly also uh, citizens are redrawn. The, some windows open for them to participate in ways that wasn't possible to participate if there wasn't, have, wasn't uh, an earthquake. And what this research did is in, uh, instead of trying to reframe what was all the controversy about, it was to look very into micro scale how this uh, relationship was rebuilt. Um, so and we, I figured out uh, the conclusion was that there appear three ways. The first one is a forum, a debate, in which can, uh, a lot of citizens' knowledge is incorporated to the plan. The second one is uh, a one in which citizens really can uh, take decisions into the urban forum. And the third one is a really close one. So what happens here, architects or experts uh, in this uncertainty try to uh, stabilize themselves. Meanwhile, citizens uh, are open into new ways of participation. And well, the final thing I have to say is that I, well, two things. First is that this raises really important democratic questions. Who, would, who should participate in the decision making of the urban, of course. And the second one is uh, we hope that this research really uh, help us to acknowledge how we could tackle these things before or hopefully don't needing more earthquakes to come. That's all. Thank you. Presentations. I think what's really interesting in both presentations for me is the dimension of speed or acceleration. So if we could think about um, the uncertainties that both of you spoke about as absolutely accelerated fast and therefore somehow also extremely exaggerated. And in these exaggerated moments, the interplay between state and citizen um, emerges. So Austin, for me, one of the questions that kept on creeping up was, was in a way, your use of risk. And it's a, it's a very academic term as well. It has a lot of contemporary purchase. But what I think is so problematic about the idea of risk is that the agency is always with the state. <coughs> the primary actors in mitigating risk are always within authorities. And I think uh, the obvious problem is that the citizens are not only victims, but they're both kind of recipients of risk and benefactors of risk. And I wonder whether your concept of justice actually mitigates that or compounds it further. Um, and I think what's interesting then about the idea of controversy is that potentially it's the citizens who are agile. It's the citizens who are volatile. It's the citizens who take charge. And I, I, I wonder, wonder if that's something we can explore tonight. Um, I would like to return to the idea of speed that for me was so much part of Sebastian's talk to kind of think about controversy as, 
highly explosive um, and impulsive uh, moments where states react quite impulsively, experts tend to react quite impulsively, and to think about what that moment produces versus the much bigger challenge of how you actually attain some kind of momentum after controversy. So how do you actually get citizens not only to spark, but to sustain their spark over much longer time periods? And I think your reference to responsibility there was really interesting. Good point to open up to the floor and to get responses, questions, comments. Any hands going up first? Any takers? How many of you are familiar with those contexts from first-hand experience? No one from, from Bogota? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a world that many of you come from, that you know well. Um, any, any responses, gutturally even, to the presentations? Let's go for David at the back. Just one thing, maybe ask Austin, I mean, this video of Myra, mm -hmm. I mean, everyone is and. I think that actually in this case, when we have risk, we have, as you're saying, like citizens are taking charge of the situation and proposing maybe some type of solution. We can find how, in that moment of stress or controversy, you can find how you, you find the best of the people there and the, 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 cap, the capacities of the people to try to solve the problem in the, in the middle of the situation. In, the, in that video of Myra, I remember well that she said, Actually, while, while she was there, a trap was almost dying, actually. She said, I'm worried about my math exam. She said, I'm worried because I have to go to school. And actually, that's, 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 that's a representation about what's Colombia. Colombia, we have a lot of problems, but people are always, all the time, thinking about duty and mm -hmm. trying to, 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 to forget about that. At the same time, she said, I, I, I'm thinking about my mother. She will feel, uh, she, she's feeling lonely. <coughs> That's the representation of the Colombia as well. Colombia is always thinking of families, actually. And, and uh, also she said, I remember, uh, she said, uh, well, okay, maybe I forgot all the things. I mean, during those times of reasons, like when people give the best, their best, actually. Maybe, maybe it's the same case in Chile, when people want to participate, to give ideas. Maybe during these stressful moments, uh, it's where people, yeah. So they, ha they, they are tragic and highly productive at the exactly. same time. So I don't know if you should take something in those cases, maybe the same in, in the Palacio de Justicia in Colombia, there's this case of this Coronel Plaza Vega, he said, what are you doing? A reporter asked, asked me, and he said, well, I'm trying to save the democracy, uh, master. He said, mm -hmm. in the middle of the, of the combat, mm -hmm. actually, it's, it's, it's another phrase. It's Everybody knows it, and, and I don't know what kind. Of, I don't know if you, you found a Colombia in your research, but kind of relevant. Well, let me let me say something in response to that that I think might be controversial, um, but because of the nature of the event, it might be worthwhile. The actually that that line that that, that you quoted from Omaida, I'm not sure that she actually said that, and the reason is that um, that has been quoted in a book called Adios Omaira, which was written by a, a Colombian journalist, who basically re, sort of did a fictionalized, a realistic but fictionalized account of Omaira and of her life and her death. And she may, she may very well have said that. 
Um, but the way in which that then got built in to this general story about her life and her death created a sort of, and he, he was the first one to say this is a fictional or fictionalized representation of her, but it was, it was widely circulated and basically as a kind of testimonial or a sort of first-hand account. And in that sense, she was, she, whether she said that or not, I think, is not as important as the fact that all of these supposedly sort of saint-like, kind of martyr-like, in some ways, um, the way in which you're describing her. And I don't have any claim to know the sort of the true Omira, and I certainly don't um, intend to sort of um, you know, say anything um, bad about her memory, but to say the way in which she has been sort of constructed as this figure, as the sort of, as you, as you say, um, kind of the ideal human or person in the face of a kind of catastrophic event, um, who's worried about her family, who's worried about her exams, who's worried about her schools, but is not necessarily a, another kind of citizen or another kind of um, person or victim, let's say. Um, so I think that's, that is an important point that gets a bit to what, to what Susie was asking um, a second ago. So to what degree when we think about these, these figures who, who emerge from events like these, whether it's the, the figure of the expert, the figure of the, of the citizen participant, mm -hmm. or the figure of the, the victim, um, how those get kind of built into these stories and narratives around the catastrophe or around the event or the controversy, whatever it is. And then in some ways that shapes and forms and constitutes the kind of political subjectivity that's possible. Right? And I think that is in some ways um, what my understanding of, of the way that Omaira has been um, sort of represented over and over and over again in all of these um, representations of her life and death, to say that she was the sort of, you know, sort of ideal, in some ways, victim, almost like a martyr-like, um, and it's very different from a kind of, um, say, the the activists or um, demanding a certain kind of justice for the state's complicity in the massacre of the Palacio de Justicia, for example. Um, a very different kind of victim, a different kind of um, subject that is emerging from that event. Yeah, maybe an another distinction that is really important is to distinguish between emergency, emergency and the controversy. So we have, a, for instance, in both cases, we have a moment of emergency which is really real and or whatever it is but the second stage is how are we going to address this and then is when things become new actors they become defining these things in many different ways and i think that second moment is where controversy really take is is are are relevant and coming back to your question again uh, susie is well i think if we have some reflections beforehand after before this this disaster come, they can really become an opportunity. So I think um, I would like to add that to, to what you answered. I, I want to ask you Sina, a bit about uh, the cases you were presenting. So um, just to make with the controversy. Yeah. I, I really like the results of this work. Uh, yet I was thinking do you think these actors actually emerge in the problem in the in the let's say there's Salcedo or Santos during still uh, present the debate currently 2010 for instance visiting the site 
and there is a set of making this intervention. Uh, or do you think they they sort of look some sort of uh, voyeurism and take advantage of what media can produce, so they start selling themselves by going back to that story. So before coming here, I had the opportunity to work in Doris Alcedo's uh, workshop for some, some for a few months, and it was, I mean, she's smart, she's incredible, I, I really like her, and the point is, before going to work with her, I was very um, inspired by her, then working with her, I realized all his art is always looking at, at guerrilla as an excuse, and then I felt sort of disappointed. Mm -hmm. So it's like Santos is is Santos doing the same? Mm -hmm. Is the research doing the same? Mm -hmm. No, great question. And I have to say that you're you're not the only one to have gone to work in her workshop and then come out with a very uh, similar kind of perspective. <laughs> I know some others who have. Um, but I think what you're what you're pointing out is is precisely. Um, or is really in some ways in line with what I'm trying to argue as well, which is that simply by returning to the event, um, I'm not saying that they're, that it's always sort of opening it um, for, the, for the greater good or for to sort of create you know, greater sort of democratic <coughs> possibilities or justice necessarily. But in opening it, it's opening all kinds of possibilities for some other kind of um, interpretation event to be, um, or some other kind of meaning to be given to that event. So I would actually say, I mean, one of the things that, since you brought up Salcedo, and if, if um, other people are interested in kind of the relationship between these issues and the work of sort of um, artists and aesthetic practitioners and how that intersects here, in many ways she, she has always referred to that particular event and that particular emergency she arrived back in, in Colombia in 1985, um, right at that moment, and says that the Palacio Justicia has always motivated all of her work. She said this in, in many interviews that she's done. Um, never once, as far as I know, maybe, maybe you can correct me on this, has she mentioned the disaster that took place a week later, where 25,000 people died. Never, never once. So she, she always talks about her interest in, in political violence. So I see very much the way in which her approach to these controversies <coughs> and these events is a way of, of defining the boundaries of the political yeah. and saying what kind of event, what kind of loss of life, what sort of controversy mm -hmm. is political and therefore is the, the focus of someone like her work and yet something like a, you know, a volcanic eruption is, is fine to, to fall under the designation of natural disaster um, and therefore apolitical and not worth the, the, the time of an important and heavily political artist like, like Doris Salcedo. Gonzalo. Hi, well, since it's controversy, I want to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> um, to disagree with the assumption that risk is just an institutional discourse, or merely an institutional discourse, and to disagree by appointing uh, controversy. You know, in Mexico City, just Again, 1985, the 19th of November, the 8.1 earthquake um, mobilized a lot, lots of lots of public participation. And since that, 
since that day, uh, I think the risk uh, discourse had permeated also civil society in a way that didn't happen before. So I, I think the, the value of urban controversies uh, are detonators or catalysts of appropriating institutional discourse for, in this case, of safety. And since that, I think people are much more aware and practice themselves, not just because of the city governments every 19 of November, every 19 of September, like take out the streets and go and do the kind of march and uh, an emergency routine, but they actually like that and do that other days, not just uh, whether they are mandated by law. So I think these events can be that strong that can make. Uh, Things like that permeate, and well, 1985's uh, earthquake has shaped Mexico City, not just the buildings, the way they are constructed, but the way people appropriate their buildings, the way people move out, uh, uh, go out of the building when the alarm sounds, or uh, the early alarm uh, considerations. I'm afraid I'm going to have to cap questions so that we can move on to the next panel. Thank you very much. I just want to leave this uh, session with one question. And the question really is, when is it legitimate to be an immoral system, a citizen? When is it okay to say no? And who gets to say no? Thank you. Set up on the, on here, but um, oh, okay. can I use this? Can I use this? Yeah, you can yeah. try. I think it's just the sound. Um, it's just, I mean, you would plug that into your sound. Yeah. Thing. Sometimes you can. Um, you want to use that? When is, uh, does this work in here? Should do, shouldn't it? Yeah, where? But it's it's the headphone jack. So it's the headphone jack, guys. It's audio wire, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But we don't want audio. We want 
pull off pictures like this, like that. Well, and then can we go to your website online? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh gosh.
Jordan as well. What about the one that was in the garden today? Because that's doing the right. And then we've got his friend. What's his name? Colin. Okay. Today. 
Um, having heard your last two speakers, uh, they're, they're very academic, and we're a grassroots campaign, so I'm not academic, but I will um, talk about the uh, rights. I'm going to start with the controversy. I'm not going to call them the rights. I'm going to call them the uprising, which you can uh, decide that you disagree or agree with. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the reason I would call it an uprising is because of some of the things I'm going to tell you that um, I think before Ken, that's my son's best friend, was convicted of uh, a murder, um, I was sleepwalking about our justice system. And I think now, um, since we started this campaign, some of the things I'm going to tell you might seem like they are, um, well, almost conspiracy theory, but um, hey-ho, that's, that's the way we will we'll proceed. But um, So I'm just going to start. Fifteen years ago, the prison population in this country was 45,000. So in the space of 15 years, we've doubled our prison population. Now, there hasn't been a, a, a huge surge in knife crime. There hasn't been a huge, not that the press would like you think that, there hasn't been a huge surge in criminal acts, but we have doubled our prison population. So um, when this happened to Ken, I kind of, uh, I, I love him like a son anyway, and I was kind of pretty sure because he's a black boy that... Um, when I first heard about joint enterprise, it was that was one of the reasons why he got convicted, even though he tried to stop a fight and was knocked unconscious on the floor. And then when you start hearing about joint enterprise and you learn about joint enterprise, it is definitely targeting uh, the ethnic black and ethnic minority groups, and it's definitely targeting working class. That's exactly who it, it's going for. So um, I don't know how many of you know what joint enterprise is. Do you need a, do you want me just to just give you a background of what joint enterprise is? It's the, the legal site, the legal terminology of it is that everybody involved in the enterprise, or so the criminal act, has to have the same foresight and the same intention. Intention is the key thing that they all intended but the outcome, what would happen, would be an outcome. Now, if you're talking about groups of young people where a spontaneous act of violence breaks out, and we're not talking knives and guns always here, we're talking about fists sometimes, we're just talking about the classroom fort, we're talking about a sprawl outside of a nightclub where a fight gets out of hand and a fist is used and someone could get seriously hurt. They will all go to prison if they, if they are involved, if joint enterprise is used in the case, which it is increasingly. So... But 15 years ago, to say that we had 45 and now bring up to modern day, we have to look at joint enterprises being one of the factors is pit filling the prison systems. Prisons are a business, that's the other thing. We've got Serco and G4 that are bidding to take over the private prisons and they're building private prisons. So we've got to look at that as another factor of why do we have to keep building prisons when we can't afford to keep people in prison anyway. And why are we sending people to prison for um, something as simple as trying to stop a fight. Um, it's a hugely political thing. The police will tell you that it's about, um, it's about uh, gangs. Okay. So there's, as you can see, we all wear our red shirts so because we're campaigners. Um, Jade and Shirley, her, their nephew, he was part of the Market Street gang. Didn't exist. The murder happened on Market Street that he didn't do. He actually tried to um, stop the, a boy from attacking his friends. And um, then when that didn't happen, someone else came down the road and stabbed him. In court, the judge said um, that it was about phone call. Now, that's a very interesting development about the law, that it's, phone calls are enough. If you phone somebody and your cell can show that you phoned somebody else before a murder, that's enough, that you're a ringleader, you're, you're encouraging. So... Uh, Jade um, made the phone call, but they proved in court that Jade couldn't have made the phone call because he had no credit on his phone. 
So the judge then said, well, forget the phone call. Uh, it can be as simple as a nod and a wink. Now, a nod and a wink is a legal term in this country. It's a nod and a wink. It means that you just need to, I don't know how you do a nod and a work in a, in a spontaneous act of violence, but so then Jade got sent to prison for life. The other thing about it is mandatory sentencing. I'm just going to give you this background about joint enterprise and why the campaign is so important, because I think when people think you go to prison for uh, anything, they believe that you're a bad person or you need, you know, you need to be in prison. If you go to prison for murder or something quite serious, they think you're a very bad person and you really should be in prison. What the public are completely unaware of is that you can go to prison for nothing, for making a phone call or, God forbid, a rap video. Now, today's Guardian has got a piece mentioned in our, our campaign by Melanie McFadden, who's a Guardian journalist, in the society section. And Melanie's come around and she's supporting the campaign, but she said on the day of the riots, the uprising, contradicted myself already, um, mm -hmm. She had to sit on her 20-year-old son because he wanted. It. He was texting his friends, "Let's go out and get them feds." Now, if he was arrested out on the street during the riots, that text message would have been enough to send him to prison for violent disorder because he's proving that. Let's go out and get them feds. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's what stupid young boys do and say. It doesn't make them rioters. During the uprising. Um, now, I'll go back a little bit. We we have been in front of the Justice Select Committee. And uh, they said, right, this law needs clarification because it's obviously uh, <laughs> a mess. And, um, but the DPP said, he came out and he said uh, in 2000, at the beginning of uh, 2010, he said he would give guidance. It took him a year to do it. And the reason why it took him a year to do it is because they used joint enterprise violent disorder for a lot of the people that were involved in the riots. So they got large swathes of people in court and just convicted them all under violent disorder. Patricia's son, Rodney, was one of those boys. And I went to Patricia's son's uh, trial and um, the, they used the joint enterprise because what it means, it means you don't have to actually find any evidence. It's guilt by association. You're all there. You all know what you're doing. You all happen to be black kids anyway. But <laughs> so they, you are all part of this enterprise. Um, they were found not guilty for the robbery. They said they stole some stuff, didn't they? But um, they were found guilty of violent disorder. But one boy was found guilty. And he came in late. He came into court late because he'd been out on bail. And he had a swagger. He was with his mates. They were dishing, the, they were sucking their teeth, and they were being really rude and being told to be quiet. And I actually thought, Shh, you're not helping yourself, boys. You're really not helping. By the end of the trial, I absolutely commended them because I, I knew that they had no respect for the justice system. Why should they? They watched their friend go to prison for five years for being out in the rights. He didn't assault anyone, he didn't harm anyone, and he's in prison now for five years. Um, there are other things, I mean, besides the fact that the, the, the riots or the uprising, I think the underlying causes of that, you will know what they are. You know, it's marginalised groups and it's young people who don't feel like they've got a voice. But the police go round schools. And, and don't forget, in the newspaper last year, the Met Police said, we are the biggest gang in the country and we are coming for you. They said that in the standard. So the police refer to themselves as a gang, but then they go around schools and say, if you are with someone and he commits a crime, and I've seen the video the police use, they use my boy actually, they use Ken, and it's, it's heartbreaking. They say, if you're with someone, they commit a crime, you too can go to prison. Now, for me, that's propaganda. That's not policing. That's not what the police should be doing. They should actually be protecting citizens. They should be looking after citizens. They should be trying to help. I mean, I, I do think the police, police have got a tough job. But our problem is 
We want to point the finger, and the finger we're pointing is the police and the prosecutors. It's exactly that. It's overreaching. This is a common law that's over 300 years old. We might even take it back to the Magna Carta, where the men were in tithes. So if you had 10 men in a tithe and one of them commits an offence, they, they all have to tell on him, otherwise they'll all get the same offence. Or you go to duelling, which is where we think it actually started to formulate. If you have two duelists and you have seconds and maybe have a doctor and a few spectators, they're all coming together with a common purpose to know that someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get harmed or seriously injured. So the judges, using common law, brought in this common law, which is joint enterprise, or it's called common purpose. Now, in South Africa, last August, 36 miners, I think it was, shot dead. And they charged the other miners with common purpose murder. I don't know if you remember. And I was, great, finally, it's, people are going to wake up and smell the coffee and realise that it's happened. And if you research that, you'll see that in the apartheid regime, the anti-apartheid supporters often would get convicted under common purpose. So it is about stopping protesters. It is about stopping protest. But bring it forward to the 21st century, where you are using it against people who are out. Um, the Fortman and Mason protesters were also charged with common pur purpose, uh, joint enterprise uh, um, trespass. So it, for where we stand now, this is not a law that is fit for purpose in the 21st century. We completely do not think. We started the campaign actually thinking, well, right, if you get four bank robbers and they go up to a bank and one of them's sitting in the car and they've all got guns, we thought, actually, yes, he's as culpable as them. But we argued for the guidance. The DPP has issued the guidance. The guidance is rubbish. He can wipe the toilet with it because it's absolute rubbish. You cannot put guidance on a doctrine. That's what joint enterprise or common purpose is. It's a doctrine. So surely the doctrine should apply. And there's not a lawyer in this country who can tell me how you get joint enterprise manslaughter. And we've got lots and lots of people in prison for joint enterprise manslaughter because there's no mens rea, there's no actus rea. So how are you part of the enterprise? How are you having the same intention and foresight? So it really, really is a mess. It's a mess. And we, as a campaign now, like she said, we've got, um, Amy said we've got 370 prisons, but our number grows because we are not getting the YOIs. The main thing is about... I think one of the reasons, the underlying reason is that if young people are being told, you know, they're stopped and searched all the time and they're being told, well, you can go to prison for something else. One, they don't believe it. They just think that's not right. No one in your right mind thinks you're going to go to prison for the acts of somebody else. You just can't. And, and, it's, and it's actually asking young people to be psychic. It's asking them to actually understand what their friend might do in the fit of a moment or in the, you know, because these aren't planned attacks. They're often very spontaneous. So I think I've nearly done my 15 minutes of that. I'm just going to leave you on a quote, uh, which I'm hoping I'm not someone sent it to me because it was on the radio yesterday. If the young are not initiated into the... It's an African proverb. If the young are not initiated into the village, they will burn it down just to feel its warmth. Thank you. Python has it now for something completely different, um, although connected. I hope. Um, let's see, different at the very least because I don't have a PowerPoint, and I think many points there are. Um, okay, accounts of the the London 2011 riots, and I'm going to challenge that term in a moment. Um, offer interesting and poignant insights into urban politics. Um, 
the insights that I adopt um, come largely from a kind of comparative perspective, looking at sort of um, contentious politics, um, urban violence and state responses from the position of almost rhetorically what would have happened if this had been Mexico, what would have happened if this had been Brazil uh, and elsewhere, maybe even South Africa. Um, Apart from analytically, and whether that's analytically appropriate, um, we, we can probably sort of think about, um, it's factually at least the way in which I first had to um, think about um, London 2011. Um, because I learnt about the events uh, of that summer um, whilst in Kenya. Now, I've been kind of interestingly, uh, sort of, uh, mental experience, I suppose, been out of email and telephone and TV contact for the previous 10 or so days, and then turned up in Nairobi to this sort of flood of news that London and other UK cities were burning, um, and BBC uh, and CNN and so on and so forth. And I was first told this by a bunch of guys while sitting in Kibera uh, in Nairobi, and found myself being interrogated about a set of events of which I knew then virtually nothing about. Um, to which I, the, the kind of phrase that stuck most clearly in my mind from that sort of in, uh, interrogation was one guy who says to me, ah, again we must learn from our colonial masters. Even you riot better than us. We kill people. You steal televisions. We must stop the killing. Okay, and a sort of rhetorical pun, I, I think, in, in the end there. In the sense where he's referring to, because think events in the next 24, 48 hours in Kenya may overtake all of this uh, on, the, on the aftermath of their elections, um, was back to 2007, 2008, where in the course of a few weeks, about 1,300 people were killed in a series of riots and other uprisings um, across uh, the country. Um, London, from the standpoint of Nairobi, um, must have looked a very odd sight. Um, according to the Metropolitan Police, um, there were major, 27 major flashpoints in the capital um, that left only, and I use the phrase as a relative statement, not as a judgmental one, only six people killed. And that might not seem like a riot in many parts of the world, um, where that number starts to kind of trivialise um, the, the events. If I put that in the same day in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico, 85 people were killed. Okay, and 85 people the day before, and the day five before that, and before that, before that, and before that. 3,200 people were killed in Juarez alone uh, in, in that year. Um, and yet, I kind of want to stress two things. Firstly, riots are not about violence. Um, and yet, also, the people in Kibera were able to make a connection across the obvious difference of scale between the two events. Okay? And it had probably more, as much to do with the televisions as it did to do with the, with the killing in, in a certain sort of sense. Um, what I want to sort of think about then um, is you know, what can, how can we interpret and what do we gauge about sort of um, dramatic, short, violent, in inverted commas, events. Um, and I suppose my sort of question, my framing question in a way is how long are controversies? And um, to kind of come back to the points of departure for the session, um, what do we learn from the actors, the political class, if you like, who are intent upon reframing the controversy discursively 
and probably putting a lid on the controversy, putting it back in a particular kind of box. So I want to kind of think about you know, what are or were the riots um, and challenge that phrase a little bit. Um, what is it about this idea of a, a loss of state control? Did the state lose control um, and for how long and in what ways? Um, and what are the implications, apropos kind of Austin in a sense, the implications for urban spaces and cities and how we think about them? Um, it's a bit academic at this point. But uh, Charles Tilley, um, in his book The Politics of Collective Violence, um, has a number of interesting things to say, um, which I think are relevant to London 2011. Um, he introduces the book by observing the salience over time and space of brawls, feuds, opportunistic attacks, violent rituals, he goes on to talk about cowboy shootouts, football hooliganism, genocide, 9-11. And what he does is he offers, with a degree of overlap, is to show how all of them on different spectrums, on different axes, have things in common to them. Levels of scale, of organisation and permanence. Okay, they differ across that, those kind of axes, but they can be talked about in to some extent the sort of the same, same breadth. He explicitly avoids war, rebellion, and revolution because he argues they operate within certain laws or codes and norms. Okay? And then he goes on into a really interesting kind of quote, which I'll give you. But, he says, I have omitted the widely used term riot from the typology for a different reason, because it embodies a political judgment rather than an analytical distinction. Authorities and observers label as riots the damage-doing gatherings of which they disapprove. But they use terms like demonstration, protest, resistance, or retaliation for essentially similar events of which they approve. He goes on, and again in quotes, just a line later, in cataloguing thousands of violent events, and he goes back actually to about the 14th, 15th century France, I have not once found an instance in which the participants called the event a riot or identified themselves as rioters. Yet immediately, a couple of hours, a couple of days, sorry, after the uh, London 211 um, riots slash protests slash uprisings, um, we heard David Cameron at this dispatch box in the House of Commons describe rioters as, quote, thieving, robbing and looting. Because, apparently, there was no moral framework, and as I say, no political framework, within to their actions, so he claimed. That text was supported in the coming days by Ing. Duncan Smith, Ken Clark, uh, and perhaps more cautiously, um, I'm not a supporter, but more cautiously, Boris Johnson. This was, I want to suggest, as kind of first point, this kind of counter-narrative that the riots were conducted by rioters, um, was not a counter-narrative um, to the rioters, protesters, slash controversialists, but to the civic groups in Tottenham, Hackney, Clapham and elsewhere, who had been arguing um, before camera and elsewhere that the riots were similar, indeed some said no different, from what was happening in North Africa simultaneously. Civil society taking on the unrestrained, unrestrained power of the police. Um, so the question that comes from that and that sort of disjuncture is who defined London 211 as a riot um, and 
in a sense, though, in, I'm thinking here of the aftermath, um, that's kind of one of the most interesting sort of issues. It, it reflects on an academic issue, which is about boundary formation, um, and about how boundary formation and how the control of boundaries around events creates people's identity, constrains at least the degrees of freedom within which people can identify themselves. Um, during the, the, the protests, um, I think it was the protesters or rioters themselves who um, defined the terms of the discourse to some extent. And in that sense, both speed and that sense of a kind of loss of control became very much uh, sort of operative uh, of, of that uh, endeavour. Um, over the course of a few days, the initially rather, the police deployed 3,000 officers to control the early stages of, of the riots slash protests, um, too few to contain the events as they were cropping up. Um, in Nottingham, I read in the paper subsequently, um, the police admit that they lost control of the city for two days, two nights consecutive. So there was a sense in which perhaps um, the, the discourse, the representation of events had shifted away from the state and of a political class. It was being defined partly by the actions of civil society, if not perhaps uh, a sort of unanimity of that civil society. Um, rioters slash protesters to some extent determined the tactics and spaces of events uh, in London at particularly 2.11. I think it's probably fair to say that the police security plan for London in the aftermath of 7-7, the G20 and anti-globalisation uh, uh, events, uh, pre-Olympics and royal wedding, um, did not consider the possibility of mass violent disobedience directed at Specsavers on Tottenham High Road. That was not where they were looking. Okay? And that is where the events kind of took place. So they were caught on the hop. Um, and they were caught sort of like, looking in the wrong direction. And there's a sort of lack of prognosis in, the, in that sense, I think, um, which added to the sort of animation of, of, of those few days. But I think after um, the riots slash protests, control of the city um, has occurred um, through a recontrol of the public discourse of the riots themselves. And I think that's the kind of segue, it sounds academic, but it's the kind of segue to um, what's, uh, what's being talked about here. Who controls the debate, um, essentially? The protests became riots, such that almost nobody questions now that they were not. Um, the protesters become rioters, such that nobody thinks that they were not, and thinking of Charles Tilly. Um, Im importantly, young people very quickly became youth, and in the words of UK Minister of Justice Kenneth Clark, a Liberal, and Mayor London Boris Johnson, and I can't remember who said what now, um, they became delinquents, a feral underclass, and members of gangs. I think Clark was the feral underclass. This is sad, um, but it's also ironic, um, because, and I'm, this is the part of the book on youth and development I'm writing, um, I've been looking at what did Colonel Gaddafi say in the Arab Spring about youth uprising against his regime and what did Vice President General Omar Suleiman in Egypt say about young people in Tahrir Square they called them delinquents, feral underclass gangs, drug addicts and rats little dogs was one of the Suleiman's phrases um, so in denying that there are any similarities in a certain sense 
unrestrained police power, the power of the state, etc., etc. Um, political class uses exactly the same language um, without wishing to, to kind of draw parallels with, with an Arab Spring in any shape or form, other than um, in this sort of uh, language against, against the young, the youth. Um, efforts were made, I think, quite stridently um, to highlight the apparent difference from previous occurrences of mass civil unrest in Brixton and Toxteth in the early 1980s. Um, Susie and I have talked about this on other occasions. The London poll tax demonstrations in 1990, confrontations between Asian youth and police in Bradford in 2001, and numerous anti-globalisation marches in the last decade or so. I think in 2011, it was important to stress by the political class that there seemed to be no recognisable political agenda, neither arguments of race nor poverty or unfairness over the unrolling of austerity that were immediately explicit as motivations for actions or served as key texts in the public discourse. It's not that they weren't there, it's that the public discourse began to crowd that all out okay, and push it away um, from the kind of the centre of the stage. Now, rather, the media were describing young people looting low-value electrical goods, clothing, alcohol, and food. And those images, unfortunately, I don't have them, were really important for their kind of rhetorical power. Uh, and not only in the Daily Express, let me point out. Um, one widely circulated image shows a black woman, um, probably in her mid-twenties, her face partially obscured by a handkerchief, carrying three bottles of alcohol and a packet of cigarettes. And the rhetorics there is, where's the politics? Okay? This is not a political act. This is a feral underclass going out for its fags and unwilling to pay for them. Um, another much-shown image depicted three young men, again black, jumping through an electrical store window, one of them carrying a plasma television. Again, no politics, therefore no justification. Conversely, we have other, two other controversialists emerging almost simultaneously. Vigilantes, who are protecting property rights and small shops, of which their legal anti-legal behaviours are not, con not, not sort of subject to the same sort of insights or, or, or oversights in public discourse at all, other than to a certain extent a sort of slightly uneasy reification of, of their actions. But more importantly, I think the street cleaning campaigns which emerged afterwards. Here were the new characters, the public, and the public were not rioters. And the public were not prone to protest, apparently. What does the good British public do? It cleans the streets. That's what, in the, in, in the context, rather ironically, of public sector budgets on street cleaning being uh, cut, um, society steps in. Um, youth, um, politics, the gang becomes a key figure, as we've already heard in this discursive context, for who defines the riots. Um, yet gangs do not riot, and this is my comparative point with Mexico and Brazil and so on and so forth. Gangs do not riot. That is not what gangs do, right? Um, now, it may be different uh, in, in parts of East London. I, I'm not entirely sure. But it's not their purpose. It is not their modus operandi in every place I have ever been and spoken with a gang. And I can't think why a gang in London would be different from that. The few examples where gangs have entailed major confrontations with the state over a kind of lockdown of the city, Rio 2002, uh, Sao Paulo 2009, and so forth, it has always been an explicitly political act. Okay? And it is not about um, ransacking the equivalent of Specsavers. 
there is an existential difference between what gangs do and how gangs act, even in political contexts, from, by and large, uh, I think what we can depict from London 2.11. So in London, my argument is, at least discursively, the state did not lose control for very long. Indeed, post-riots, we witness, especially through the courts, um, and including David Cameron getting very close on public daytime TV to arguing that judges should sentence according to moral behaviour and not what the law said. He kind of caught himself and, and slightly moved back to the reassertion of state power very, very quickly, um, at least rhetorically. Um, and I think what we've heard an awful lot about since is, is this sort of diminution and this re-kind of calibration of who are the controversialists. The controversialists are now not the rioters or protesters. The controversialists are the sweet cleaners and so on and so forth. And a lot of that is, a lot of this kind of new public debate since 2.11 has been about legitimating a response to the question which, again, an academic, David Bailey, um, asks in a different context. Again, my comparative lens. A book called Changing the Guard, Developing Democratic Police Abroad. Bailey proposes a simple kind of philosophical test of whether the police are democratic. And he says to ask, quote, do parents teach their children that when the children are away from home and need help, they should ask a police officer. So if you trust the police, the police are democratic. I think that's a very dangerous assumption, philosophical or practical, to make. But I am mindful of the fact just how much we've heard the word trust used in the last year or two years, um, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the criminal justice system um, and despite Leveson and so forth. Um, where I'll end is, is to kind of consider um, what was lost in London 2.11. Um, and I think what was lost, and it, it was a kind of set of discourses around the city and, and, and the citizens. Um, I think we lost the political class's enthusiasm for multiculturalism. I think that went, it was on the wane. Um, and I think we lost its replacement cosmopolitanism uh, as well, also on the wane. We also lost community co cohesion um, as a phrase, um, ally of the Cantwell report, and some might say I'm into that, but um, I, I think these kind of phrases have somehow abated in the last 12 months or so. Um, more importantly, though, because I don't care particularly what, what consultants propose a great deal, um, we lost a space, or because I'm a Lefebvrean, a moment um, for a post-political city. A city in which there could be an alternative politics, um, in which the social is political. Um, because I think that does, uh, does help to understand some of the, the events of, of that summer. Um, and I think, well, unfortunately, we lost by learning um, a scepticism, or relearning re a scepticism, um, that possibly we are not the 99%, and that we do tend to think of ourselves as deciles and quintiles um, very quickly. Um, and probably we lost um, a little bit of the sense in which London um, needs a degree of controversy um, because the politics of the city since, and I could deliberately use London 2.11, um, since London 2.12 has all been very publicly, not behind the scenes and in other quarters, but publicly from City Hall and so forth, kind of nice. London was fixed 
by London, by, by London 212. Uh, the controversy seemed to go, and it went by this notion of helpers, those street cleaners who now became London city helpers. And that seemed to kind of put back in a new set of agents, a new set of people, in a sense without multiculturalism, cons cosmopolitanism, uh, controversialism, rights, and so on and so forth. It just became civil society. And it didn't have a particularly political agenda. Okay, thanks.